Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. going to be in James chapter 5 and we're just going to read two verses, verses 13 and 14. If you look on the back of your bulletins, you will see the, uh, the sermon outline uh, that's actually going to be for the next two weeks. As I started studying this message and putting it together, I decided that we need to stretch it out over two weeks um, because there's a lot here that we, that we need to cover, I think. And so last week, we, were, we started talking about prayer and uh, I couldn't get it off my mind. And so I've been thinking about prayer a lot lately. And so we're going to be in James 5 to kind of talk about what prayer is and what that looks like. So if you have your Bibles, go to James chapter 5 and we'll read verses 13 and 14. And if you have James 5, 13 and 14, stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms or sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you again, and Lord, we want to explore your word this morning, and we want your word to speak to us. So this morning, out of your word, would you speak to us? Would you instruct us in the ways of righteousness? We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. When he went to the Brooklyn Tabernacle, it was a ramshackle building with only a handful attending. They were outnumbered by the muggers, transvestites, drug addicts, and more in their neighborhood. They did not have enough money to pay the preacher, who had a second congregation in New Jersey. Jim Cimbala was ill-equipped, undereducated, and overwhelmed in his own inadequacy. In his search for answers, the Lord impressed deep within his soul that God would be with them in power if he and the church learned to call on the Lord to supply their needs. In desperation, he put aside his planned message and called on the church to pray. The prayer meeting, not the Sunday worship, became the focal point for the Brooklyn Tabernacle. They began to see God work in their sin-sick world. People were accepting Christ. Gang members became leaders for the world. Transvestites gave up walking the streets for ministry and marriage. And today, the Brooklyn Tabernacle hosts 10,000 worshipers and a Grammy Award-winning choir that has traveled the world. They've also planted other churches in New York, and it all began when a handful of people humbly admitted how desperately they needed God's help and prayed fervently. And you know what? They didn't stop praying either. To this day, they have a church. To this day, they have their church open 24/7, around the clock, 
and church members will go into the church and pray in shifts. So prayer is going on in that church around the clock, day and night. Can you imagine what it would be like if we did that? Can you imagine what our community would look like if we did that? They experienced a little bit of what happened in the book of Acts. And when it says in Acts 1.14 that the early church all joined together constantly in prayer. The word translated together literally means with one mind or passion. The word translated constantly means resolute, sometimes obstinate persistence. This morning we're going to piggyback off of what we talked about last week at the end of 1 John. And we're going to talk about the power of prayer. We're going to specifically talk about what effective, fervent prayer means. Last week when I talked about the will of God and about what that means, I hoped that it set a lot of us free in terms of what we pray for. I feel like a lot of us uh, just kind of resigns ourselves to whatever will be, will be. Right, We have a whatever will be, will be mentality when it comes to prayer. And so we don't pray for big things. We don't pray for grand things. We don't pray for audacious things. All the while, God wants to use your prayers to make what you believe to be impossible come to pass. I'll say that again. God wants to use your prayers to make what you believe to be impossible come to pass. John Knox was a pastor during the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Protestants were under heavy persecution from the Roman Catholic Church. And Mary was trying her best to quell the rise of gospel preaching coming out of John Knox and those who labored with him. And this is what one article says. It says, although Knox had been imprisoned and enslaved, and though he was often infirm and under threat of persecution, he consistently lived out his theology, believing that one man with God is always in the majority. As such, the prayers of one man heard at the throne of God were a threat to the throne of Scotland. During the time of the 16th century, Scot during the time of the 16th century Scottish Reformation, Knox's ministry of preaching and prayer were so well known that the Roman Catholic Mary Queen of Scots is reputed to have said, "I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe." She said, "I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And so here's the big idea this morning. If we pray, God will act. If we pray, God will act. One of the things I think is worth mentioning is that James gets his thoughts on prayer from Jesus. He opens up by saying that he's a bondservant of Jesus, and Matthew 13.55 tells us that he's one of the brothers of Jesus. So he didn't just follow Jesus around for three and a half years. He grew up with Jesus. He learned everything he knows about prayer from Jesus. And as we keep that in mind, we'll see three things in this text. We'll see the position for prayer. We'll see the promises concerning prayer. And we'll see, and we'll see a prime example of prayer. But we're probably only going to get through the first point this morning. And so what position do we have to be in for prayer? Well, look at the beginning of verse 13. First of all, we see that we can be in a position of suffering to pray. He says, is anyone, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Now, we can and should pray from a position of suffering. A lot of people have found God when they have hit rock bottom in their suffering. My grandpa likes to sing a song that says, God reached way below the bottom for me that night. My grandpa preached up at Paris a couple of weeks ago when we were in revival, and he said that he and a couple other guys up, up there had made friends with a fella um, that was an atheist whenever they went to Arizona. And every time Paul and one of his friends brought up God, he just kind of ignored it and finally said, listen, I don't really believe in all that God stuff. I'm what you would call an atheist. And his wife happened to be there, and she said, you sure weren't an atheist a few years ago when you thought you were going to die. <laughs> I think sometimes God allows people to suffer so that they will call out to him. Because if you suffer badly enough, you'll come to a point where you realize that you've got to have somebody to get you out of the mess you're in. And so next we see that we should pray from a position of cheerfulness. He says, that, he says that the next half of verse 13, is, any, is anyone cheerful, let him sing psalms. Now, if you're reading from the NIV or the CSB, then instead of sing psalms, it might say sing praises. Regardless of what it says, the exhortation is clear that if you're cheerful, you should sing. Now, I think we have a problem with this sometimes. If you're a man, you might not think singing is very masculine. If you're a woman, you might be afraid you don't sound very good. But neither one of those things matter when there is a command to sing. I shared this in a previous sermon, but I think I'll share it again here. It seems appropriate. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in, you with all, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, which, by the way, we, we studied the purpose of the psalms this morning in Sunday school. So, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now, based on that verse, listen to what Pastor Tom Olson explains. Listen to as he explains why singing is so important for the church. He says in Colossians 3, Paul is challenging the Colossians to literally put sin to death in their lives, to kill sin. So, all the commands to love and peace and forgiveness and teaching and singing are attitudes and habits of the believer that will kill sin. We see the same thing in Ephesians 5. The command to address one another in song comes right on the heels of the command to make the best use of time because the days are evil. And the more you think about this, it makes total sense. What posture must be more hated by the evil one than the posture of a believer who is singing? I can't think of many stances you take that identifies you with Christ and against Satan more than eyes, heart, mind, and voice lifted to heaven in song. It's very hard to lie, be greedy, or to look at something inappropriate when you're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Simply a heart that's, do, simply a heart that's doing will not easily give in to temptation. A singing heart is a heart at war. I'll say that again. A singing heart is a heart at war with the work of the evil one and the power of sin. And so why is it that people commit the same sins over and over again? Why is it that people keep falling back into temptation? Why does the alcoholic keep going back to the bottle? Why does the drug addict keep going back to the meth pipe? Because they're not making war. 
as a believer, you should make war with your sin. If, there's, if, there's, if we got nothing out of the book of 1 John, for the 8, 9, 10 weeks we were in, in the book of 1 John, if there's nothing else, we should get that last line deep in our souls. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Make war in your soul against sin. A few weeks ago, I shared with you about John Wesley's experience at a Moravian prayer meeting at Aldersgate. Well, what, what led Wesley to even go to the Moravian service in the first place was in 1735, John and Charles Wesley, they were on their way to America as Anglican missionaries, and a group of Moravian immigrants from Germany were also on the ship. A terrible storm developed at sea, and they were in danger of being shipwrecked. And the Moravians were in the midst of a worship service and praising God with much intensity. Wesley was terrified. Wesley recounts the, 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 the event in his diary. He says, In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split, into the, mainsail, split the mainsail in pieces, and they covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if a great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans, however, who were the Moravians, calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, oh no, our women and children are not afraid to die. The storm was boisterous, but the Moravians kept praising God. And finally, the storm subsided. How is it that someone can look death in the eye and be not afraid? It's because they've made war with their sin. It's because they trust in Christ. It's because they know how to use singing to God as a weapon. What does it say about us when we come in here on Sunday morning and we open up our hymn books and we go, Listen, you're not making war! We have to make war when we, go to, when we go to God in praise. Why? Because praise wards off the enemy. Acts 16, 25-30, Paul and Silas were imprisoned. An earthquake came, the door, an earthquake came, the doors came open, the chains fell off, and then a guard awoke, and he was going to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped, and that might as well have been a death sentence in that culture. And just then, when he had drawn the sword to... to, to off himself, verse 28 in Acts 16 says, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Why does that matter? Because what happened was, Paul and Silas, just before that, they were shackled up in prison, and they started singing. And their singing, I, it doesn't say this in the text, I'm going to infer based on what the text says, their singing and their praising God caused the earthquake. When you praise God, your chains will fall off. When I was a kid, I lived with my grandparents about half the time. And I noticed a, a stark difference between my life at home with my mother and my life in, in my grandparents' home with them. And the stark difference was that my grandparents' house was always filled with with singing. My grandma would be in the kitchen cooking dinner, washing dishes, and she would always be singing something. 
I would be outside playing. I could hear the piano from outside, her singing something, playing something on the piano. And you could feel the presence of God. Even to this day, you can feel the very presence of God when you walk into their house. Something is distinctly different. And it's because they're always making a war. And so, what, and so what's the answer? How is it that you can get through what you're going through? You've got to keep singing until the answer comes. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you, cheer, are you cheerful? Sing psalms. That's what the text tells us. Not only should you pray in a position of suffering, not only should you sing in a position of cheerfulness, but James says that there's another position we can pray from. Look at verse 14. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Elders, your ears should perk up. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we read this, and honestly, I th I, I, I've got to wonder if we as Mars Hill Church really understand and obey this text. When was the last time you were sick and you called for elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray for you? When was the last time we didn't just say a prayer for someone, but we actually laid hands on them and anointed them with oil? It is the job of both elders and pastors to exercise care over the flock of God when they're sick and suffering and in need. And I understand we've been in COVID. COVID has kept us from, from doing a lot of these things because we've because it's it's just plain wisdom to stay back from someone when they're sick and contagious. But when was the last time we actually did this for someone who had cancer? When was the last time we actually did this for someone who, was, who thought they might have been dying? When was the last time we did this for someone who suffered with chronic pain? And so here's the thing. I feel like we're lacking in this area. But Ezekiel 34, and here's a warning that I think all of us, including myself, need to take seriously. Ezekiel 34 has something to say about shepherds, pastors, and elders who do not feed the flock. Listen to what Ezekiel 34, two, verses 2 through 5 says. He says, Son of man, God is speaking to Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. And verse 4 is, is key here. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. And then if you move on down in that same chapter to verse 10, this is what Ezekiel says. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. See, the shepherds are supposed to protect the flock from wild animals, they're, but they're sitting there cooking and roasting them themselves, and God says, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. 
God places shepherds over the flock to serve them, and the shepherds are sitting there consuming, draining life from that which they're supposed to give life to. Elders and pastors have authority over the flock of God, and too many times we fall into one of two ditches when it comes to authority. We either abuse our authority or we avoid our authority. And so what does that look like in the context of church life? Well, when someone abuses their authority, they might say something like, well, I've been here for X number of years. You better listen to me or you won't be happy. During the first church I pastored, an elder told me not to get any big ideas about changing anything because they've run off every pastor they had before that got big ideas and they weren't afraid to run me off either. And so what does it look like? So that, that's, I think, what is what it looks like when a shepherd abuses their authority. What does it look like when a shepherd avoids their authority? Well, when they're called to do something that the Bible requires shepherds to do, they might say, well, I'll just let somebody else handle it. Or so-and-so will take care of it. All the, time, all the while, God's going, I called you to do it. It's your job. You took this position. You made vows and oaths before God and before the congregation. And too many times we fall into the to abuse of our authority or avoiding of our authority. And James' instruction here in, verse, in James 5.14 about anointing with oil and praying for the sick, this is an opportunity for us as pastors and elders to step up and take initiative and do what we're commanded to do. Now when it comes to anointing with oil, the question, well, what does that mean? Because that, on, on a surface level, it doesn't look culturally relevant, but, or is it? See, this isn't an allegory. We shouldn't treat it as an allegory. We shouldn't treat it as something that was only relevant in the first century. He isn't, James isn't talking about some medicine that was only available back then. He's not talking about some magic oil sold by charlatans on TV. He's talking about common, everyday olive oil. The most common oil you can get your hands on. And so what does it mean? Why do we have to do that? Well, is it because God won't work any other way? No. God's not going to disregard your prayer just because you might have the wrong oil. Because it's not the oil that heals you. It's God. Well, if it's, it's, if it's God that heals me and not the oil, why do we even use it? Why does the passage instruct us to anoint with oil if it doesn't do anything? And here's why. Number one, oil is a symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Anytime you see oil used in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it reflects the work of the Holy Spirit that's going on in that moment. Number two, kings were anointed with oil when they were appointed to take, to take the throne. Number three, priests were anointed with oil when they started their work in the temple, according to Numbers 3.3. 3. And so what does oil mean for us? Well, I think it only makes sense then that we would anoint believers with oil because according to Revelation 1, 5, and 6, the Bible tells us that as believers we have been washed with his blood and are now kings and priests unto our God. Now think about this for a minute. Where would James get the idea to anoint people with oil? Why would James tell us to do such a thing? Well, keep in mind, James gets his theology of prayer from Jesus. 
So he got it from Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He followed Jesus. He watched Jesus. Now you think, well, I don't remember reading where Jesus anointed people with oil. It's in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And then if you move down to verses 12 and 13, it says, So they went about and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And so James got the idea from Jesus. I think, without saying it, I think without saying it out loud, we have a problem with James because his writing style is so different than Paul. The, the emphasis in his letters, in his letter is, is different than Paul's. When Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German, he didn't even want to keep James in the New Testament because he thought there was no gospel in it. But he kept it in anyway due to peer pressure from those who were assisting him. And I think without saying so, we're tempted to take Luther's side on this issue. But when you understand that James isn't just pulling things out of the air, and he's actually drawing off what he learned from Jesus, then the whole book of James opens up to you. So James gives pastors and elders the responsibility of praying for the sick and anointing them with oil. And the question then is, how should we pray? This is important because, as I said last week, I think we're stunted in prayer because we're afraid that, that what we're praying may not be the will of God. If that's your problem, then there's a solution for you. When you pray for the sick, pray for them in the same way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray that God's kingdom would break into, the, break into the sickness and that God's will would be done in the situation on earth as it is in heaven. In the River Valley Ministerial Alliance, our secretary has been diagnosed with cancer. And before we dismissed our last meeting, we laid hands on her and prayed for her. It was me, two Church of Christ pastors, a Christian church pastor, a Southern Baptist deacon, and a non-denominational pastor. I remember praying for her, And I said, right now we're experiencing sickness, turmoil, and confusion. And none of these things, Lord, are at work in your kingdom. Your kingdom resolves all of these issues, and so we pray for an inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So here's the thing. When you don't know what to pray, pray for God's kingdom to be revealed in the situation. Because as far as I know, she still has cancer. And you know what? Regardless of what happens, we're going to see God's kingdom at work in her life. If she's healed, then we're going to see the work of God's kingdom on earth. If she dies, then we get to see what it's like for a woman who is consumed with a love for Jesus to pass into glory with confidence and assurance. And the kingdom will be revealed that way. Either way, we see God's kingdom at work. And so what, is it, what, what will it take for us to believe what this passage says? What will it take for us to do what this passage says? Is it a trust issue? Because I see too many times where we just don't trust God, man. And I'm talking to myself, too. We just, we just don't trust God when we need to. We try to take things into our own hands. We try to rationalize things. We say, well, we shouldn't pray for that because that, you know, people die from that all the time. 
or she might not make it. Or he, you know, he's too far gone. We can't think that way. We try to rationalize it that way, but we can't think that way when it comes to what God can do. God can do the impossible, and I, and I, and I would like to think that we would believe that. And so here's a probing question for us this morning. Is there a situation in your life where you need the kingdom of God to be made manifest? Is there a situation in your life where you need to see God's kingdom at work? Are you sick? Are you suffering? Do you need help? Do you need healing? Do you need prayer? Because I'm going to be honest, I don't just want to talk about this, I want to do it. And so if you're here this morning, I will pray with you. The elders will pray with you. And you don't have to leave here with the same burdens that you came with. I'm going to pray for us, and as I finish, the altars are open. Almighty and everlasting God, this is your word, and we are your people. And Father, this morning, we just want to take you at your word. We just want to come before you and say, this is what we have. This is what you've given us. We want to rest on your promise. Father, help us to trust you more this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.